class as maybe some more students gather let us pray heavenly father here this morning in the bleak midwinter you have given us a day where the temperature is higher than it's been making us think about something new and fresh that still is in front of us may our subject matter may our teaching this morning also entice us with something new and fresh and for that we anticipate being thankful and we are thankful for our teacher dr lloyd be with us now this morning as we endeavor to take on the subject at hand in jesus name amen All right. One of the things that I study in my work in Indian rhetoric or Indian persuasion, a method that they use in India, <laughs> is um, analogy, argument by analogy, which gets downplayed in the West as sort of a backup plan for the stupid. And I'm not kidding. I actually read Chrysostom this morning, one of the church fathers, and he said, well, you know, Paul adds a few analogies for the, for the slow. <laughs> and yet he uses some very good analogies himself. Makes me think about, well, who does he think he's talking to? <laughs> but I think analogies, instead of being for the slow, I think they really help us understand something in a way that other things can't. So here's my analogy for this morning. I was traveling in Croatia. I'd never been to Croatia. I didn't even know really Croatia existed other than in the news. You would hear the name. And I wasn't sure what it exactly had happened. I know Yugoslavia, and then it split in Serbia and uh, Bosnia. Wasn't sure where they all were, and yet I'm there <laughs> in Croatia. <laughs> and, and surprisingly enough, you know, it's, it's only 20 years a democratic country. It's a very Catholic country. They're very proud of being who they are and very proud of being Europeans, which took me by surprise. I didn't really know. But I had only been there one day, but I, I, it was one of those things where I was stuck waiting for my boat to go out to an island, which is where the conference was. And so as I was waiting, I was just observing people. If you've traveled, that's what you do. You just watch people. I don't know if it's when in Rome do like Romans do, but it's more like, what do Romans do? So I'm in Croatia, and I'm looking around, and I'm, I'm kind of summing up what I see. Well, later on, I get to the island, and uh, uh, my Croatian friend who invited us all to come out there for the conference showed up. And so I was talking to her, and she's like, well, what do you think of Croatia so far? And I jokingly said, <laughs> well, I figured this much out. Croatian breakfast is coffee, beer, and a cigarette. <laughs> Okay, now here's the part where it gets surprising. <laughs> Most Americans would be embarrassed if you said something like that about Americans. She goes, you know, Croatians really like to live life. <laughs> so I learned a whole lot. Not only did she not disagree with me, <laughs> she's like, that is Croatian breakfast. <laughs> but she's, she interpreted it entirely differently than I would. I saw it as kind of self-destructive behavior, <laughs> kind of sad <laughs> that that's what you're sitting around doing. 
She's looking at it, no, you're just enjoying the best life has to offer all at once. <laughs> all right, so what I'm trying to do in our little tour of the ancient world is to give you a sense that these places were all Croatia in that sense. They were all analogous to that idea that these people had their own cultures, their own backgrounds. One of the cities we're going to look at today is already 2,000 years old or something like that. It had already, you know, had been there since the Stone Age. So, and then other cities we looked at, like Philippi, have been there only a few hundred years. So analogously, they're more like the United States, whereas some of these cities we're looking at are more like Croatia, a place that's been there longer than anyone can remember, and people and cultures have been there. So Paul is traveling around to these different cities, but we forget that even though they are all loosely Greek because they've all been under the influence of Alexander and they speak Greek, some of them have their own languages, their own cultures, their own backgrounds, their own traditions. Are you with me? So they didn't see themselves as being just separate cities in one country. They saw themselves as being separate peoples. And some of them had very different ideas about what reality was. So the mystery for us now is how does Paul write a letter to four different churches, all of them incredibly different? Whereas before we were looking at one letter to one area, this time we're looking at Galatia, and there are four different churches we'll see. And he's trying to stress the theme of one family through adoption. That makes sense to me, because getting back to the analogy, here I am with this person in Croatia who has a very idea, different idea about what life is about. Yes, a good breakfast. <laughs> and actually, that's what she had for breakfast. I know, because at the conference, that's what she had for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, a lot of drinking went on at that conference. <laughs> Another thing that's odd, though, to Americans is that a lot of drinking goes on in Europe, but they don't get drunk. They don't drink to excess. That's embarrassing. That's... That's culturally, you don't do that. So all these kind of cultural things are happening. But what I was trying to figure out at that conference is, all right, there are Danes here and there are Swedes here, there are Norwegians here, there are Americans here, there are people from England here, and all of us study the same thing, but yet how we're trying to make ourselves into a discipline, into a family. And so it's very difficult when we have so, such different assumptions about things. And it's just as difficult in Paul's time. So he sums up what he's trying to do by saying there's neither Jew nor Gentile or slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. But the idea, that he, the analogy he uses to bring that about is that we're all adopted. We're all adopted children in the same family. So I love that passage. I think it's the most progressive passage probably in the New Testament about Relations, something that hasn't come true, I don't think, until very recently in terms of the world. The people have equal rights. Male and female has become something of equality rather than of oppression. So it started with Jew and Gentile, sort of made it to slave and free in about 1,800 years, and we're still working on male and female. All right, the Galatian churches... There they all are, and I, I, these are in order. Antioch, Pisidia, it's important to know that because Antioch over here in Syria is actually the headquarters of the new church, the, the church, the Christian church. This is Antioch of Pisidia. 
And this is why it's confusing. Galatia is actually up here. This is where the Gauls settled, and it's a Celtic culture. But these areas were settled by other cultural peoples. But the Romans just did what we do now, which is just to lump all this area together and call it the province of Galatia. So the, the Romans put a bunch of people that really had nothing to do with each other into one area. The second city he goes to see is Iconium. Then he f goes to Lystra, which is Lustra at his time, and Derby, which I'm fond of because I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and it sounds <laughs> like home. <laughs> Unfortunately, we know, we know almost zero about Derby, and it is, it's an exception in the sense that he never goes to small towns, and this is a small town. We know nothing about it, and I think if Paul had never been there, it, no one would know about it. Uh, the cradle of the Christian church, though, like I said, is in Antioch in Syria, which, given today's headlines, is an interesting thing to think about. That the church, the Christian church, actually began in Syria much more than Jerusalem. It was kind of a failure in Jerusalem, but it took off in Antioch of Syria. Peter and Paul and all of the apostles came there eventually. Not to mention, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. The temple was destroyed. The Jews were cast out. The Christians had already mostly left. All right. Now, you could read, like I usually do, I'll give you a whole paragraph for those of you who get this at home and want to see all the details, but I'm just going to say there, there was an argument over there whether he was talking to the Gauls, the Galatians, the, the ones that were Celtic peoples. But it seems more logical that he's talking to the churches that he actually established in Roman Galatia. But the confusion is, would he have understood what Roman Galatia was? Yes. Historically, we know now, though, that Galatia, Romans called Galatia that whole area, and then later on it switched back to being more the Gallic, and so it's confusing over time. All right, but the main thing I want to get to today is that the issue that he's trying to address um, with his adoption argument is that we the, the churches have now been led astray? One of the other famous lines from the from Galatians, the beginning of chapter three: "Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?" Meaning, like, what demon has gotten hold of you? Actually, it means something more like, "What demon put his evil eye on you?" <laughs> the churches were led astray from Paul's trust, faith-centered teachings by individuals proposing another gospel, which he calls it another gospel, which centered on salvation through Mosaic law called legalism. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, you know that this actually makes sense. The Jews were protected under Roman law. It was much more well known, more established. And it's sort of like being part of a new trend or really tying yourself to something already established. It would have a, a, a lot of attraction. We'll see also that Paul's arguments to the Jews are very Greek and therefore it doesn't take. We'll see, you know, because a lot of times you're like, why did the Jews get so ticked off at Paul? And we'll get a little sense of that tonight, or today. <laughs> it's so dark, I think it's nighttime. All right, Galatians appear to be receptive to the teaching of the newcomers and Paul's epistles, you know. He can't believe that they're willing to turn to that. All right, let me talk about Antioch and Syria first. Because this is where Paul actually comes from and goes back to when he goes through Galatia. Uh, the church traces its origins to the Christian community founded in Antioch. 
and they were known there when they moved there as followers of the way. And if you remember from Acts, we learned that this is the, f- the first time they were called Christians. They, actually, they, they left Jerusalem because they were persecuted and they were safer. There's another reason that um, they went to Antioch. It had a huge Jewish population already. Many Jews had already fled there for other reasons earlier. Um, so, but this time they're coming for persecution. And as it says here, this is the first time the word Christians is used. And it's actually like a lot of times people get their name from being made fun of. It means Christianity, which means little Christ. Meaning they think they're little Christ. Now that's very profound and true. <laughs> but on the other hand, it kind of came from a, a, der- a, a derivation. All right. So the first Gentile church is founded. The first time there is a, a church that's actually for Gentiles rather than for Jews. Then uh, Paul started his missionary journeys there. And, but the reason that the church takes such a different shape is because that in Antioch, this is a very Greek city. It's not Jerusalem anymore. And the Jews there are very Greek. They don't look at things the way Jews in Jerusalem look at things. So we see in slow degrees which begin in the synagogue, that Christianity becomes basically a religion among the, quote, Gentiles. What's important about this letter is we see that happening. All right, a couple other facts. It's an ancient uh, Greek city. It was founded, uh, it says here somewhere, by Seleucus. Seleucus, uh, right after... You know, the empire, Alexander's empire was divided up into sections. He was one of the readers. leaders. Uh, it was important for the spice trade, the Silk Road, and it's the main center of Hellenistic Judaism, meaning the huge population of Jews lived there already. It's called the Cradle of Christianity, and it was a metropolis of about a half million people, so it was a huge, huge city. Now, let's go to the other Antioch, <laughs> Antiochia. Thespisidias. It was founded in 280 BC by, you know, Antioch, and later became a Roman colony, and it's the most Romanized of all the places that Paul goes to. Uh, Augustus, have you noticed that Augustus has something to do with every city that we've looked at? Sooner or later, he renamed it or put a colony there, and Augustus, of course, is emperor right before Jesus is born. Uh, it becomes a sister city of Rome. So this is the most Roman place that he goes, and this is where he bases his missionary activities. It makes sense. The population was about 100,000. So another really huge city. And we see here Paul's habit of going to big cities, figuring that if he can convert and start a church in a big city, it'll have influence out into the country. All right. Augustus actually built a, a temple to Sybil there, and it later became a church. I wanted to look at that because of some other things we talked about earlier. Um, and then there's a church dedicated to St. Paul that was built there, as there is in every city that we've looked at that he's been. There's a theater, which we're looking at, Roman bath, fountains, etc. cetera. Uh, and it, there's a nearby, there's a temple of Artemis, and next to a site of Mary's monastery. If you remember last week, Artemis and Mary seem to be associated everywhere you go. 
So I wanted to bring up those familiar patterns of the church at the temple of Sybil, that the temples to goddesses later became churches, and then Mary's associated with Artemis like she was before. Um, then in 713, it was finally destroyed by the Arabs. That seems to be the pattern as well. <laughs> I might end with Thessaloniki next week. We'll see. That would be the only city that wasn't destroyed and is still there, of the, all the ones we've looked at. All right, so Paul goes there, as we learn in Acts 13. From Paphos, Paul goes and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, which meant something to them. Pamphylia is just uh, east of where we're talking about. From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue. I, I'm a little frustrated. I was thinking about this morning. I'm frustrated with Luke sometimes because he skips over cities. And you want to think, okay, he had his narrative reasons and he wanted to have, you know, there were certain places that stood out to him. This was worth talking about. But from a historian or from any other kind of point of view, you're kind of like, well, what happened to these other cities? What did he talk about? What did he do? Who did he know? We don't know. But we do, sometimes there's a mismatch between what Paul remembers and what Luke remembers, and so at least we find out some other details. All right, so standing up, Paul motioned to Tan and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, because he's in the synagogue. He could only go to a synagogue in a place that has one. We'll see one of these cities doesn't even have one. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. All right, so since Jim's in my Bible's literature class, one of the things that makes Israel's religion unique is that they believe that God is revealed not so much through nature or through you know, um, worship, but actually through history, that you know God is working because you see God working in history. Um, and that's the approach that he's taking in this sermon. God gave them judges, so he's just going right through history. Then Saul down to David. Once he gets to David, that gives him an opportunity to talk about our theme. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as promised. So first of all, he's implying, and um, not stating all that directly, but implying that Jesus is a son of David, son of Jesse. <coughs> that becomes important in the next few sentences. Paul's sermon resembles a lot of the Christian sermons, especially Stephen's. We see the first sermons that Christians gave always were based in the Old Testament. Yes? Now, all you have to do is think, well, what if your audience doesn't know the Old Testament? So far, so good, because he's speaking to Gentiles who are in the temple, so they have become converted, and he's speaking to Jews. Fellow children of Abraham, you God-fearing Gentiles. There you go. To us, this message of salvation has been sent. So this is almost exactly what he says in Galatians, almost the same argument. He goes through Jesus' life and death and, and uh, the promise of the resurrection. Then he goes, when we, we, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Okay. So at this point, you're like, well, okay... Are we children of God already, or did something happen? And then he goes to the second psalm, which is, You are my son today, I have become your father. He's saying that we're adopted. So there we go. <laughs> it's a theme of adoption. God raised him from the dead so that you will, he will never be subject to decay. Then he goes through this kind of odd little discussion about that David 
the promise was that David would not decay, but David did decay, so it must have been promised to somebody else, which is Jesus. Now, he says some stuff here, though. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification, how many people? Everyone. This is where he's losing the Jewish crowd. Do you see what I'm saying? They're like, we're sons of David. They're not. You just said they are too. Yes? I don't know about you, but if you put your head in that mindset, like, what are you talking about? I am physically a son of David, where they're not. I don't get this. You're saying they're adopted into the same family? How, how happy are the real children in that context usually? You're going to have a little sister or brother. We're going to adopt them. It gets territorial, doesn't it? Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something. He uh, quotes uh, one of the prophets. Okay, so what I wanted to bring across is from a Jewish perspective, a traditional Jewish perspective, what he's saying is radical and even heretical. Yes, that somehow Gentiles could be the same to God as they are to, you know, what, the chosen people? That's everybody now? It's not just the Jews? So, he also says something really insane as far as they're concerned. The law is a hindrance not an advantage. Oh my gosh. What makes a Jew a Jew? They're a son of just they're a son of Abraham, right? First and second, what makes them a Jew? The law. Yes. Abraham, Moses. That's what makes a Jew a Jew. And he just said that's for everybody, not just Jews. Hold on. Are we getting an idea? This is why they start picking up stones. <laughs> this is why he ends up getting beat. A lot of times you're like, it doesn't seem like a very scary message, right? It seems natural, especially if you are a Christian, to read it and go, well, of course. But it was not a well, of course, to them. Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue. The people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Oh, by the way, when they were invited to speak, that was customary for travelers to be asked if you have anything to add. So, you know, they were following customs. Um, when the congregation was dismissed, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Talked to them. Yeah, next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered. Okay, that's one of the hyperboles of the, of the New Testament. We've got a city of 100,000 people. I don't think they're all there. But a lot of people show up. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas Anderson, jealousy, isn't that an interesting word? You don't get jealous. Who do you get jealous about? Somebody that's trying to get something you think you should have, yes? You get jealous if somebody's trying to steal your girl, you know, your man. <laughs> you get the idea? This, it's a, that's the perfect word. I used to read it as jealous. Uh, it's kind of shallow, but it makes sense. It's trying to say, you're trying to say, this is my sibling? What? It's a sibling rivalry kind of thing. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected it, do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. I have made you delight to the Gentiles. You bring salvation to the end of the world, the ends of the earth. 
So he even quotes scripture on that. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> we can inherit everything that was to David or to Abraham. This is amazing. They were appointed, they was appointed for eternal life believed. But of course, Jewish leaders inside of the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. Interesting phrasing there, isn't it? Stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet, which was common at the time. You, you did symbolic things. So if you're shaking the dust off your feet, saying, I'm not even going to carry your dust. And went to Iconium. They were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. All right, so I put a little note down there. It's impossible to read. While many Jews outright rejected the gospel, others converted. Yet those that did convert continued to live as Jews and taught that all Christians should keep the law and be circumcised. Paul implies that James, the brother of Jesus, and others at the church of Jerusalem favored this point of view. We'll get to that. That's your sneak preview of what's coming. So the Jews had two reactions. One is completely reject, and the other is they became Christians, but they were like, well, now that you're in the family, you've got to do what the family does. Yes, get circumcised, keep the law. We have. And, of course, you can't help but think of the parable of the prodigal son. We've been here the whole time, right, taking care of dad, and you come in here, that's not going to happen. So a lot of this makes sense if you think of it as kind of almost sibling rivalry. Well, let's look at Iconium, the next place that he goes. Now this place, look how old it is, 3000 BC. Wow, it's already that old. So it was settled in the late Copper Age, and the Hittites had lived there, something called the Sea Peoples lived <laughs> there. And then later on, the Phrygians came there. And you're like, the Phrygians? Did they invent cold make things to make food cold? No. <laughs> the Phrygians are actually more known to us because of their relationship to the Greeks. One of the most famous Phrygians was a king named Midas. Ah, there you go. Another was Gordias, who, uh, when Alexander came through, tied a knot and said, if you can untie this, you can have the area, and Alexander just chopped it in half with a sword. <laughs> Smart Alec. <laughs> they also took the wrong side in the Trojan War. <laughs> All right, so this is a, a proud and ancient people. The Phrygians had been there for a long, long time. All right, so when we're talking about Iconia, they've gone from this other place, but this has a completely different history, different culture. The last king of Pergamon was about to die without an heir. He bequeathed his kingdom to the Roman Republic. It's interesting that this city became part of Rome through adoption. Do you see it there? It was given over. He bequeathed it. Now, I don't know if Paul knows that or anybody else does. I think it's an interesting coincidence. So Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas preached during the first missionary journey and probably during the second, maybe even a third time through. We don't know the details. Under the Roman Empire, Claudius had the names changed and it continued to the Byzantine Empire up to the ninth centuries. So what else about Iconium? This is very interesting. This, I find that kind of almost Celtic. Um, that's a drawing from, not from Iconium, but from the Phrygians. So, they do have 
a Jewish synagogue. They had Iconium, Paul, and Barnabas, which means they have to have a certain amount of Jews that live in the city. Went to the usual to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling to perform signs and wonders. People of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews. And it's interesting, the Bible continuously uses this phrase, the Jews. So you get this hint, why would someone say that? The writer has to be, what, a non-Jew, if that makes any sense. The writer's a Gentile. And others with the apostles. Or else they would probably say believing Jews versus non-believing Jews or something like that. They just kind of group them together as if everyone knows what that means. There was a plot afoot, I love that word afoot, among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to Lyconian cities. And Lyconians are completely different kinds of people than the people in Iconium. Of Lystra and Derbe, the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Now see what I'm talking about here? A few tantalizing pieces of evidence, but we have no real fun stories here. We just find out there's a threat. But we do find out people were so mad about this, they followed them. I don't know about you, but that would have that would have been a lot of trouble. That's not like just going to Columbus. They had to walk or ride horses through distances without hotels. All right. So Lystra noticed that the the narrative only really talks about the two bigger cities, this one and Antioch, Pisidia. Lystra was about 20 miles south of Iconium on the Roman road. And about, there he is again, 6 B.C., Augustus sent troops to capture it as a Roman colony. So it's only been Romanized a very short period, 40 years, something like that, 50 years, depending on when he wrote the letter. The inhabitants of Lystra worshipped Greek gods, and this is the famous story where Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. They were mistaken for them. Uh, and we're, it's confirmed, their description in Lystra gave a list of priests of Zeus that were there, and, the, and there's a, on their coin, they have a bull symbol of Zeus. There's no record of a synagogue at this place, so he doesn't go there first. But it's also the hometown of, of Timothy, or we think it's the hometown of Timothy. And it's, I thought this was odd. I, Along the way, when I'm doing these things, I always have to find out the meaning of things that I just have heard all my life but made no sense to me. A titular C. I'm like, what the heck is that? It means that it keeps the title, but there's no church there anymore. And that, of course, they keep it because Lystra is a place Paul went. Okay, it's Lustra in Greek, and there it's populated by Lyconians. So they're not Phrygians like the other people. They're Laconians. Uh, I love this. I found this. I uh, just had to put it on here. It said, to a great extent, independent of the Persian Empire and were like their neighbors, the Osarians, a wild and lawless race of freebooters. But then again, I was frustrated. I was like, what the heck is a freebooter? Now I've got to look that up. <laughs> freebooter uh, is a culture that... They invade other areas around them and start revolts. <laughs> so Putin would be a freebooter right now. <laughs> Does make them kind of fun, but it keeps your country safe. Yes, 
go stir up revolts around you, nobody's attacking you. They use their own language rather than Greek or Latin. So it's even more confusing when Paul has to tell them we're not Zeus and Hermes because they speak Laconian. They don't speak Greek. And in Acts, it tells you that. All right, so in Lystra, there was a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language. Do you see it? I'm hoping that after this experience, things will stand out to you that never stood out to you before. The Lyconian language. Who are those Lyconians? They were freebooters. The gods have come. What's really unfortunate to me is uh, this has been a lot of trouble to do these presentations because very rarely does anyone talk about anything but other than how the New Testament relates to these places. But I'm more interested in, like, who were they? What did they do? What did they eat? What did they talk about? Did they think breakfast was coffee, beer, and cigarettes? Or the equivalent? You know, who were they? You know, it's very hard to find this information. It kind of inspires me as a historian that maybe I should just go over there and find out. <laughs> and when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out to the crowd. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't read the second paragraph. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted like Conian language, the gods had come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was their chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. This is just craziness. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore the clothes and rushed out of the crowd shouting. I like that tearing your clothes thing. I wouldn't do it. I don't think anybody would now. But that's how they showed anger and grief and great emotion. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from those worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way. This is the radical part of what he's saying. Yet, he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness in giving you rain from heaven and crops. So he's saying, even the Gentiles know God. You can see it. It's there. Even through these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And of course, what happens? Then some Jews came from Antioch <laughs> and Iconium <laughs> and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. So finally he got what they were threatening in all the other places, thinking he was dead. In one of the most surprising verses in the New Testament, it says, but after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back <laughs> into the city. <laughs> I remember reading when I read reading that the first time or whatever and thinking, wow, he just got up? He'd just been stoned, they thought to death. I don't know if you know anything about stoning, but it would be really hard to survive. I just had a friend of mine yesterday that had some wood fall on her head because a shelf fell off the wall. That was bad enough, but to be standing there and have people throw stones at you, that's insane. All right, that's just a little note about Laconia. I've already talked about that. All right, one last place, Derby. That's all that's left. <laughs> it's kind of sad. Um, they build houses out of mud brick, though, and eventually you just have a foundation that just kind of goes back to the elements. 
But let's at least put it on the list and have whatever I know. This is all there is to know, apparently, about Derby. Antipater of Derby, a friend of Cicero, was a ruler of Derby, was killed, and that's all we know. In Roman times, it struck its own coins, of which a few are extent, so at least it had that much clout. It was evangelized by St. Paul, visited by St. Paul. And then it became a suffragan. See, I, again, why are you giving me these dumb words that I have to look up? Which means a subordinate diocese of Iconium. So they, the church just made it a part of a, the Iconium church. And then uh, we only know four bishops, and that's all we know about Derby. That's very sad. And it's now a titular see. And now you know what that means. You remember what it meant? In name only. <laughs> I guess you could have a titular son. All right. <laughs> You're my son in name only. All right. Timeline for Paul's epistles, I just thought I'd throw that in there. You can uh, see this is when he visits, and then this is the range when he probably wrote the different letters. Give you some kind of a context, but let's move on. I want to talk about this adoption thing. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? For your eyes, very eyes, and I told you bewitched means who put their evil eye on you. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really is in vain, is there still hope that they will convert back to his way? So again I ask, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or believing what you heard? So, What's his argument going to be? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is really tricky. Because the Judaizers say we should follow Abraham in being what? Circumcised, right? If we are, are to be Christians, then we should be circumcised as Abraham was, because that's the sign of the covenant. It's logical to think that. So Paul has to find some other way to make Abraham fit in that doesn't talk about circumcision. And of course, he goes for the earlier thing. There's, logically, that makes sense. There's a, circumcision is a sign of a relationship that already occurred. Yes? He didn't gain the relationship through circumcision. It was a sign. Does that make sense? So he says, that faith came first, and the relationship was already there and based there. Right? It's tricky, because if he's going to use Abraham and the other people using Abraham, he has to use Abraham differently. All right, so who were these Judaizers? They've come up before in some of the other talks. But they were Jewish Christians who taught that, they should, that the people of God should follow the laws, and particularly circumcision, Sabbath observance, and Mosaic covenant. This is compounded by the fact that the early church met where? In the synagogues. So... They're already meeting in the synagogues, so shouldn't they be Jews? So we're right in the middle of that question. So, here's what's interesting to me, because I tend to think Judaizers is kind of a splinter group, right? These are just some of the Jews who believe this, but that's really not what the New Testament is telling us. They, the Judaizers are appealing to the greater authority of the Jerusalem church, governed by James the Just. 
Like it says, while many Jews outright rejected the gospel, others converted. Yet those that did convert continued to live as Jews and taught all Christians. This is the same passage I put earlier. Paul implies that James, the brother of Jesus, and others of the church of Jerusalem favored this point of view. He says here in the letter, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch of Syria, <laughs> not Pisidia, <laughs> I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, whom he mentioned earlier was the brother of Jesus, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So logically, you have to figure James' group favors the Judaizing view. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in their hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. All right, so he's showing that at the very beginning there were some problems. The, the central core probably of the church of Jerusalem were pretty much what we would call Judaizers. And then Peter and Paul began to develop this other concept that the church is for the Gentiles as well. And they actually have a council here in Antioch and finally settle that Paul is going to the, be the apostle to the Gentiles and all the others to the Jews. It's sort of a compromise. All right, so it's not some splinter group. The Church of Jerusalem seems to be a majority, that point of view. All right, here's Paul's adoption argument. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm going to ask is where the heck does he, does he get these arguments? This is not a natural argument. You're a son because you put on the son is an odd argument, isn't it? It's almost like saying you're wearing the son's clothes because he says you're clothed in Christ. It's a very odd argument when you think about it. I was trying to explain to somebody who doesn't, hasn't, you know, has no connection too much to the New Testament, and she was like, I, I don't even understand that. <laughs> this is his first argument. And I am asking the question, well, where do you get that culturally? Is that a Jewish, is that a Hebrew idea? Is that a Greek idea? Is that a Roman idea? All right, so adoption is being clothed with the Son. If Christ be the Son of God and you've put on Him, thou hast the Son within you and art fashioned after His pattern, hast brought into one kind or one nature with Him. This is what John Chrysostom said in like the 300s, 400s. Um, so the later church picks up on this idea that you're clothed with Christ and therefore adopted. All right. Now I want to look at the other passage and then we'll look at the different views of adoption that they had at the time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son born of woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has spent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Abba is uh, Aramaic, basically meaning daddy or dada. By the way, Pope is... Latin for daddy, papa. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. So he makes a second argument um, 
that's proven by the fact that we have this impulse to call God our Father, that we've been adopted as sons. The word he uses there is huiothesia, which is a Greek word and a Greek concept, and it means to be adopted into the divine family. It would have meant something to the Greeks, more like um, Hercules is, is adopted as a god in the pantheon. That's the word that he uses. Now, it's natural for him to use that word since he does speak Greek. He's writing in Greek. He reads the Greek Septuagint uh, version of the, of the Old Testament. On the other hand, why did he use a Greek word when he could have used something else or he could have used a different Greek word because there's a different Greek word for adoption. So what concept of adoption does he refer to? Well, he's got a little bit of a problem. If he uses a Jewish concept, he could undermine his other arguments to say that you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. Am I making sense? Judaism's view, we must be Jews to be Christian. I, he has to be careful. If he uses a Roman idea, that's possible, but if you look at the Roman idea of adoption, it doesn't relate fully to what he's, the ways that he's using the word. All right, so I'm asking a question, could Paul be utilizing a more common Greek concept because that would be across all the cultures that he's speaking to, one that would appeal to both Jews and Gentiles in a larger Greek culture? You probably guessed the answer. This was shocking. Are you ready for this? I thought, okay, I'll look and see what the Old Testament says about adoption. It doesn't. There are no laws in Exodus about adoption. The pre-exilic period, uh, the evidence is meager. Seems adoption played any role in the it, if adoption played any role in Israelite family institutions, it was insignificant. The times that we do see people being adopted, like Moses, it's in other cultures. This person was conjecturing that perhaps it was their tribal consciousness that they just kind of took care of their own. They didn't have a need for adoption, and also polygamy. Why adopt if you can marry another woman? For the post-exilic period in Palestine, there's no reliable evidence for adoption at all. And yet, in the Bible, we see in like Hosea, etc., this idea that God calls Israel his son. Like, well, they're using this idea of adoption and apparently don't practice it. And the biblical metaphor of God's adoption of David, particularly the one that Paul's talking about, all right, there are two things going on. One is the uh, adoption of a person as king, so he's adopting the king as his son, which would be, you know, ancient Egyptian, ancient Greek idea that the king is the son of God. And that God's adoption of Israel means that it's an inheritance, right? That if you're a son, you inherit the property. Okay. From the pattern of covenant in the priestly documents, P, which we're talking about in class right now, it... Uh, Paul is using more of an idea of redemption from slavery, and we'll see what that, where that comes from. All right, and in Romans and Galatians. It makes sense that he uses it in Roman Galatians in a minute. If we look at Roman adoption, it's very interesting how they did it. They did it f to have a male heir, um, and basically because children were expensive to raise. You say you had two daughters, instead of taking a chance <laughs> that the next one would be a male, you can adopt a male, and Romans adopted full-grown males. They didn't adopt babies. The reason they would do that, they already knew the character of the person. And usually he had money or something. There was some other attraction. 
So, um, and plus in Roman inheritance rules, you had to have a son. So you had to adopt one if you didn't have one. All right. But they also adopted mostly uh, for other reasons like reinforcing alliances between families. So they could adopt someone that already has a family. You didn't have to be an orphan to be adopted. And you were only adopted in the paterfamilias rules, which means only a man could adopt a, a man. In fact, only men were adopted. And, but significant of what we're talking about is that you got the rank of the family you were adopted into. So if they, if they adopted a plebeian, then they would be, and they were patrician, patrician being the higher caste, plebeian the lower, then they would be a patrician. All right. What I also want to bring up is that it's done through the signing of a legal document. It's quite different from Greek custom. So this would be more a legal agreement, and I'm not sure Paul really, that's going to help Paul much, because that makes it a law. All right. So it, it, what he's saying doesn't really fit the Judaistic model, and it doesn't really seem to fit the Roman model very well. Except for this part. In, Roman, in the Roman model, like I said, you could adopt someone from another class, and they became part of your class. The opposite is true as well. But Romans could adopt freed slaves. So say you had a slave that had served the family well, you could free them and then adopt them. They inherited everything equally with your children. That seems to be part of what Paul is drawing on. Now, let's talk about the Greek one. The Greek word is eis poesis, which means literally to make, or even in a more fancy way, to make a poem. I'm like, that is cool. <laughs> to create. So in the Greek idea, you are being born as a son. And I think that's very much a part of what Paul is talking about. All right. So in Greek adoptive laws, they were made to keep the oikos, to keep the family unit. It wasn't as much inheritance as it was to create a family. It was only men, but it took place publicly. And this is another way that I think Paul's drawing on it, that it's, a, it's something... It's not an agreement made over in some legal office. You went to the Agora, and you were, legal, and you were publicly proclaimed the child of this person. It was followed by a ceremony and a sacrifice. This makes sense if you look at the language that Paul is talking about. You inherited the property and the obligation to perform rites. So there's a religious connection as well. Uh, inherited equally with other children. If you died without heirs, then your property went back and was shared equally among the, the adopted family, not anyone else. So, let's put all this together. And let me back up and just talk about some of the earlier points, and then we'll get to adoption. The history of churches Galatia parallels in many ways those of Ephesus and Philippi, which I've already talked about, especially in the later conversion of a temple to civil to a church and Mary's association with Artemis. Though Roman influenced and ruled in Antioch, Pisidia's sister city of Rome, on the whole, they retained local identities and were culturally Greek. So we see Zeus and Hermes rather than Jupiter and Mercury when they're seeing them as gods and they're speaking in Laconian language. Paul's visits emphasizes habits of going to large cities. Derby's the exception. 
probably on the way to somewhere. This contrast between the Acts narrative, and then contrast between the Acts narrative and Paul's letter reveals that Judaizers' movement involved more than just a few traveling teachers that he kind of implies. His letter implies, on the other hand, that a significant portion of the Jerusalem church was under its sway. And then his mention of James, the brother of Jesus, uh, that's something for you guys to look up, because that's a fun one. There are three people named James, two of which don't seem to be James, the brother of Jesus, one of which gets killed, and, uh, but it's very confusing as to Paul is saying that James the just is Jesus' brother, where Acts does not say that he's Jesus' brother. I tend to go with Paul on that one. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Maybe the Acts guy knew a little bit less than Paul did about stuff. Churches to which Paul writes the very locale and culture, and they have various relationships to Judaism. When Paul begins his mission, he preaches much as he had to his Jewish predecessors, relying on Jewish history and scriptures. He uses those arguments in Galatians, but he supplements them with, I think, what is a pretty much a Greek argument. When he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, that illustrates it. If he's using Greek arguments, then he is dissolving those boundaries. So he's writing to an audience of converted Jews, Greeks, and Romans. He utilizes the theme of, of adoption, and he uses a little bit, I think, of all different models, mostly the Greek. So let's look back again at what they were. In the Jewish concept of God's adoption of King David, he uses the Greek term most parallel to that. Paul uses the, the Greek term most parallel to that tradition, adoption of son, the son into a divine family. With the actual verse is, the king proclaimed the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. So that sounds very much also like the Greek concept, isn't it? It's a public statement. It's a ceremony. So even in this interpretation, Paul is following Philo of Alexandria's method of reading the Hebrew Bible allegorically. He's saying David is allegorically like us. Philo was a teacher born about 25 B.C., as it says here, and he heavily influenced the way uh, Greek Christians thought. The Roman practice of freeing by purchased, because he uses the word redeemed earlier, uh, bought, of adopting slaves and giving one name and lineage, that seems to be reflected in this. And then the Greek ideas of public ceremonial adoption, religious responsibilities, and new birth seem to be a part of what he's trying to say. So the message from today is a little less depressing than other weeks. <laughs> the church is no longer a Jewish institution, and what we see here is uh, like a core sample that shows us just how much things were changing. His arguments start shifting from being arguments made for Jews and making sense to Jews to arguments that make no sense to most Jews, <laughs> and very much based in the Greek culture shared by most of his listeners. There we go. And in Pisidia. Yeah. You call it Pisidia and Antioch, I don't know. And, and he's making this argument, and at one point the Jews counter his argument by saying, basically, what about the law? And the very next verse was, and Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Now, the word boldly there is, is almost a gross understatement because they had made the same argument, in a sense, that Stephen made when he was right. in court. Trying to save his own life. And Paul was there that day. We right. Know from Acts that Paul held the coats of 
he was yeah. a different listener then. Yes, he was a different listener, but he knew the argument. He'd heard the argument that Stephen made trying to save his own life. He knew how it ended. And he knew how it ended. <laughs> so to say that he answered them boldly is really an understatement. He, an he answered them with the, the most dramatic tension that a person could answer because he knew what eventually could happen, and in fact it did It did, happen. a few we cities later. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting in the sense that part of me reads it and thinks, Paul. <laughs> but I'm also thinking this is one of his first sermons, right? So he is modeling it on what he heard Stephen say, which makes sense. On the other hand, I don't think he's quite gotten to the point he has in Galatians, where he's like, I think I need to move on from this. It gets me stoned. And, and at least begin to interpret it more for a different audience. So you can see him shift his perspective. So in Acts, it's very close to Stephen's. It's almost exact. And, and then Galatians, you see it's repeated in a short form, but lengthened with this whole adoption thing. He, takes, he, he explains it better, and he uses a lot, he uses a better analogy, I think. Yeah, that's, that's good, yeah. They were allowed in the synagogue, yeah, if they were converted Jews. Not if they're just off-the-street Gentile. But if they on the other hand, they must have allowed them in a certain space or they couldn't have been converted. Right. So I'd have to look into that, exactly where did they sit. I'm sure they didn't sit up front or anything. But <laughs> women had to sit in the back for that matter. But I'm sure they had to, their own space. And maybe these are more informal things, not necessarily during the worship service. I doubt they're there unless they're converted in a worship service. But it, in this part where they're just having the dialogue, maybe they're more welcome. I'll have to look into that. That's an interesting question. I sort of have it in my head, but I never really thought about looking to see. Yeah. They split, but not necessarily. In, in yeah, they do split in theological and other kinds of issues. And where they want to go, they split, yeah. What was the question? But it <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they split. Paul, you know, he, he has trouble getting along with anybody. He, <laughs> well, let's be honest. 
<laughs> I don't think anybody stays with him. Uh, Timothy, maybe, all the way through. But even Timothy, he sends off. Yeah. Yes, there's a whole, di well, I don't know about adoption, I'd have to look at that, but, um, oh, yeah, I'm a firm believer that Jesus framed his arguments to a Greek audience a lot of times, less, I think far less in some ways, because I, I don't think he saw that as his mission, I think he saw his mission to the Jews, and then, um, but in terms of the influence of things like Follows interpretation, or some uh, uh, Hillel, uh, uh, some of the Jewish scholars of the day. If you look at the way that they talked, they, he was very much in line with some of them, and some of them were influenced a whole lot by Greek ideas. So, I see it kind of as a movement that Jesus. Well, okay, that's the synoptic gospels, the first three gospels. When you see Jesus in John, he's depicted as pretty much a Greek philosopher. So we have a whole different approach. Does that make any sense? So you are the light of the world, I think is very Jew-focused. Yes, saying, because he's quoting that, he's saying that the Jews are the light of the world. That's the reason they're chosen, to be the lamp that shows people God. You get over to, you must be born again, and the things that he says in John, these are very heavily Greek concepts. That's why John begins, in the beginning was the word. This is, a, this is from Philo, this is straight from Philo and, and from Plato, the, the idea that the world was created through the divine word. So it's very much a Greek book. Does that make any sense? So the first three Gospels, Jesus is the varying degrees. Mark, he's more just to the Jews. Matthew, he's kind of to the Jews, maybe the Gentiles. Luke, much more to the Gentiles. And some things are changed in the way that he says them. And then you get to John, and you have just a fully Greekized version. Adoption. The only thing I can think of is the is the baptism. It it says today, you know, this is my son, and it seems like one of them says today, I have begotten him, right? And Jesus is baptism. I looked at Matthew and it doesn't say that. Now I'm gonna have this memory though that it's a quote of the David that this is, this is my son. So it's sort of an adoption ceremony of some sort. If that makes sense. Not so much that Jesus is being adopted, but so much that God is saying, "This is my son." That he's he's declaring it. Yeah. Yes, I'm trying to think of which one that's in. Which gospel that's in. Remember the story. It sounds Johnish, <laughs> but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But no, I don't think he. Spe I don't think he really speaks to this issue of adoption. I think Paul pretty much is the first one to really expand on this idea. Yeah.
I, I really, I tend to lean more toward the synoptic vision of Jesus is that he was a Jew speaking to Jews. He was a rabbi. And I think if you don't understand how rabbis taught and spoke, you, you miss a lot of how much of a rabbi he was. They recognized, even his enemies would call him rabbi. They knew he had authority. They knew that he spoke as a Jewish rabbi. They just got mad about what he said. Okay.